I'll be reading from Mark chapter 14. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, as we come before your word, help us to be humbled and confident. Humbled because God, very God, the living God, is speaking to us. And confident because God, very God, the living God, is speaking to us. By your spirit now, would you open our eyes to see and believe? Help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm reading from Mark in chapter 14. We'll read here the first 21 verses. We can make it. This is Mark 14, starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
This is God's word. If you've been with us over the past weeks and months, you know that as we're reading through Mark, uh, you may have noticed that the pace in Mark lately has changed as we're nearing the end here. For many months, in the first ten chapters, we followed Jesus over the course of three years of his life. It took ten chapters to cover three years, and Jesus goes from place to place, sort of like a pinball across the area through all these cities. And then when we hit chapter 11, this now has been the final week of his life. Mark then devotes six chapters to that final week. And now as we come here to chapter 14, we've come to his final night. Mark's pace slows down here toward the end because the end of Jesus' life really is the most important part of his life. And he wants us to sort of slow down just like a slow motion camera so you can really see what's happening here. As we're coming up to the most central act in all of history, the death and resurrection of Jesus now, Mark records these events. What's, what we've read here is really two tables, two Dinners. One's in Bethany, one's in Jerusalem, and each table deserves its own attention. But I think Mark purposefully connects them to show us something. So that's what we'll do this morning. We'll look at each individually and then see how they're connected to see what Mark and really what God is saying to us. So then let's look at this first table. It's in these first nine chapters. This table is in Bethany which is a small little town uh, two miles east of Jerusalem. And this is Tuesday evening. It's a couple of days before Passover. Uh, Passover, the meal itself is celebrated in one meal, but there's a whole week of celebration. So it's a whole week uh, then. And they're at the house of Simon the leper, Mark says. We don't know anything about this guy other than this. Uh, but I know I wouldn't want to be called Nathan the leper. Uh, sounds like a rough, uh, rough name to go by. It seems as if he's probably not still leprous. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in his house. He would have to be outside of the city. So it's possible that this is one of the people which Jesus has healed. But we don't know. All we know is uh, Jesus is with some of his disciples here at Simon the leper's house. And they're reclining at the table, which sounds odd to us. And it sounds like uh, kind of kicking back. But in their context, the tables were shorter. And the way they would eat together often is uh, by having uh, cushions or pillows or something like that, and they'd prop themselves up on one elbow and use the other hand to sort of share in eating, eating the food. That sounds like it'd make my arm a little sore, but that's the way they did it. So now they're all eating together. It's a very normal meal. And in the middle of this meal at Bethany, there's a disruption. In comes this woman. Mark doesn't tell us who she is, but in John's gospel, he says this is Lazarus's sister, Mary, and she brings in this little bottle filled with nard. 
which, I, which is perfume, but that's just an unfortunate name for perfume. You know, I, I, it's, that'd be hard commercial to sell. Uh, here's a bottle of, of nard. To the English ear, that just sounds really strange. You know, lavender sounds pretty, nard does not. Uh, but nard is not only perfume, it is some of the best perfume. This is Chanel number no. five. Did I get that right? Is that the fancy one? I don't know. What's, the, what's a fancier one? It's the, it's the best stuff. And so they put the best stuff in, in these alabaster jars, which had these really long necks, and they would seal off the end so that all the smell would be contained in the jar. And so the way that you get the stuff out is you actually have to break off the neck of the jar, and as soon as you do, the smell just comes out. So now, imagine with me that you're at this scene. Jesus, disciples, they're all kind of leaning, having their pita chips or whatever it was that they're having. And in comes this lady holding a bottle. And it says she went to Jesus' head, which is near the table. All their feet are kind of sticking out, sort of like a peacock feather. And so she would have had to scoot in, excuse me, excuse me, squeezing by so she gets up there, kind of moving others gently out of the way. And when she gets up to his head, she takes out the bottle, snaps off the neck of the bottle, and you smell it. And then she takes the whole thing and dumps it on Jesus' head. At that moment, there was probably a gasp in the room. Not just because Jesus is wet. This is not a sporting event with Gatorade. You know, it's not that kind of thing. Uh, in this culture, uh, they could not just go out and buy Dove body wash. You know, they're generally clean people, but showers are a little less uh, common and accessible. And so um, to be perfumed is actually really an honor and a privilege. So that would have been a good thing, but the gasp would have been because this stuff was so expensive. In fact, Mark says exactly how much the people are talking. We could have sold this for 300 denarii. Maybe your Bible even has a footnote saying how much that is. A denarii is about a, a day's wages, so we're looking at a year's worth of wages here. You could have sold this perfume and bought a car, a new car even. How much is that in a modern context? Over $10,000? More? And now all of that perfume is running down Jesus' hair into his straggly beard and dripping onto the floor. After the initial gasp, maybe it says how they felt about it. In verse 4, it says they were indignant. And in 5, that they scolded him. The Greek there in those original words are really intense. It's that they snorted. You know, they were so, ugh, they were, ah, you know, one of those feelings. I can't believe they did that. And, and they said, they say in here, this uh, stuff was wasted Aren't there better things she could have done with that perfume? I mean, we could have, this could have been given to the poor. You think tens of thousands of dollars, how many people we could have fed or how many people we could have housed or how many people we could have just helped. Jesus says, this wasn't a waste. 
what she did was beautiful, he says. In verse 7, he says something surprising. He says, you will always have the poor with you, and wherever, whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you won't always have me. Now remember, Jesus himself was a poor man. I mean, he very famously and intensely defended the poor, the widows, the orphans, the needy. And so he's for people that are poor. You can only imagine in a modern context what he might say about homeless people and immigrants and refugees. He would at least have a posture of compassion toward them. I mean, here he's eating at a leper's house, for goodness sake. And yet he says, you'll always have the poor with you. It sounds almost dismissive, but the Old Testament says something very similar in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Just a single verse here, 15 verse 11. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. What God is saying here is that the people of God should be the first ones to be open-handed and to help those who are in need. Sometimes it's disappointing to look out at Christians broadly and how we're doing in this. But here, at least, Jesus is guarding us from the opposite error, that he doesn't want us to get so absorbed with trying to fix poverty and affecting social change that we would miss Jesus, the true Savior who is standing here right in front of us. He's basically saying, don't get your priorities out of whack here because while Jesus certainly affects social change and he calls Christians to do the same thing to some degree, Jesus is much more than just a social reformer. He doesn't just want to bring people out of poverty. He wants to bring them to God by his righteousness. So here, he says, this woman, she got it right. This perfume was extremely costly, and we have to wonder, how does a lady get a bottle like this that's so expensive? Especially in a culture where uh, the men worked, generally. So how does a woman have this very expensive bottle? Probably, it was a family heirloom something that was grandma's grandma's, that had been passed down from generation to generation, this alabaster jar of precious perfume. And now she says, this is what I want to do with it. And in an act of devotion and honor, she pours it over the head of Jesus because he's worth it. And Jesus says at the end of the section, for what she's done, she'll be remembered. <laughs> and that's what we're doing right now, 2,000 years later, what he said is true. That's what happens at one table. That was the table at Bethany. 
But Mark goes on to a different table here in the next section, a table at Jerusalem in what we know as the upper room. This is two days later. This is on Thursday of this final week. This is the night that Jesus uh, is betrayed. And they're taking uh, a Passover meal, which we'll talk more about that next week, what actually is the Passover meal and what's happening there. But again, they're around a table and they're all kind of reclining. And Mark says they're dipping bread in this stuff, which is probably some sort of mashed up fruit with herbs and spices together. So let's put ourselves in this context. We're in this small upper room with just an inner circle of folks. And we're all having the Passover meal just a normal holiday celebration. Christmas Eve, you're doing whatever you normally do. And in the middle of a very normal meal, Jesus says something you'd never expect. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but I think you probably could have heard a pin drop in that room. And eventually, I mean, here, he doesn't say exactly who he means. We know he's talking about Judas. The other Gospels make clear that Jesus knows that it's Judas who's going to betray him. And it's also clear that Judas knows who he's talking about. Earlier in the text, it said that he had, agreed, he had met with the chief priests and the scribes and had talked to them about how he was going to look for a chance to, to hand Jesus over, and he'd agreed to betray Jesus for money. But when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, the response then is the disciples start talking and murmuring, and, and they start to get nervous. And each of them, it says, ask kind of one, of a, one at a time, Jesus, are you talking about me? And then, then, uh, then the next one, I, it doesn't say what he says. Then the next one, uh, are you talking about me? Or, uh, is it me? Am I the one? And, and the, the fact that they are sorrowful about this, that they're nervous, that they don't want to betray him, that's a good sign, by the way, that they would not want to be the one to betray Jesus. But I wonder... Did Jesus also ask, Jesus, is it me? Knowing that he was the one he was talking about? You know, I wondered, did Judas' face get really, get really red? You know, how did he feel about this? There's a lot that we don't know about Judas. One of the big things is we don't know why he did this. We don't know his motive, there was, at least fully. Was it greed? Was it some sense of disappointment? Whatever his motive was, we know that it was intentional. It says in verse 11 that he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. He's looking for it, and even worse in the verse before, it says that Judas was the one who went to the chief priests and scribes. He knew they wanted to kill Jesus, so Judas specifically went to them to help them out. Judas here is not being flippant. He is not, this is not accidental. This is premeditated. It's planned. 
And even though all of this is happening according to the plan of God, Judas did what he wanted to do. Judas acted according to the desires of his own heart. What really gets me about this is how is Jesus not furious? I mean, he's just said, one of you, one of the 12 who have been with me for three years, you know what we've been through, guys. One of you 12 are going to betray me. Wouldn't that just make you sad or angry or just want to, ah, oh, something, grit your teeth and, and sock at the table or something? How, how is Jesus not furious here? Because betrayal is some of the worst pain we can experience. It's worse than even rejection. Rejection says, I don't want you. Betrayal says, I would rather trade you for something better. That's why it hurts so much. If you've ever been betrayed by a boss, by a friend, by a spouse to be traded in the moment for something better hurts. And it can only come from the ones who are closest to us. Maybe you know what this is like. Jesus certainly knows what it's like. And David, the psalmist, knows what it's like. Uh, he hit something right on the head, I think. He talks about this in one of the Psalms, which, by the way, this is Psalm 55. I, it's, I love that the Psalms have all the emotions of life in them. They're not all just happy and bubbly. Some of them are heavy and hard, and we go, yes, I get that. Psalm 55, David says this, starting in verse 12. It's not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him, but it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. David says there, if I were hurt by someone who is an enemy, that hurts on some level, but I can deal with that. But you, my close friend, my companion, how do I deal with something like that? It's one thing to be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes who have always had it out for Jesus. It's quite another thing to be betrayed by Judas, who is one of the 12 disciples. The psalmist, David, calls for justice. And he trusts that God will vindicate him, but there's still pain there. Now, what happens when, like a big party coming into a restaurant, when we push these two tables together, the table at Bethany and the table at Jerusalem? Because when you juxtapose things or stick them right next to each other, it affects the way we see it. 
So you can see this sometimes on the internet, you know, there's a, a post of a sign fails, I think they're called, where sometimes the billboards that are on the side of the road, there's, you know, people advertising for various things. And sometimes, unfortunately, two things end up next to each other uh, that, well, they're unfortunate, like uh, McDonald's uh, dollar menu says one sign, and the sign underneath it says diabetes. A heart, a heart attack is right around the corner, and you go, ooh, yikes, that was unfortunate that they put those two together. We see them then differently because they're right next to each other, and I think Mark is just juxtaposing or putting these two tables right next to each other on purpose. In fact, he's making a, a little sandwich of them here. You can see in the first couple of verses of chapter 14, he talks about the betrayal and the chief priests, and they're trying to kill him. And then we shift to this story of the woman and her devotion for the next several verses. And then in 10 and 11, he comes back. And then Judas met with the chief priests and the scribes, and they plotted out how to betray him. It's almost kind of sticking that together. And I think he's doing that to highlight a comparison for us that intensifies the way we see both of them. It intensifies the devotion of the woman that we see what she has done is that much sweeter and on the flip side it intensifies the way we experience Judas's betrayal that up next to the story of the woman his betrayal is so much more bitter At the same time, even though these experiences are very different, radically different, they do have one thing in common. An act of devotion and an act of betrayal are similar in one way in that both of them give up something. In devotion, we're giving up something, and in betrayal, we're giving up something. That's the essence of both, even though they head in different trajectories. So the woman gave up her most prized possession to gain Jesus. And on the flip side, Judas gave up Jesus to gain a handful of coins. Hmm. As we look at this, it highlights then what it means to follow Jesus. That following Jesus is more than just being part of the right crowd. This gets at the heart of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. Judas, who was one of the twelve, is revealed as one who is not a true disciple. And the woman, who Mark just leaves unnamed, is honored as a true disciple. So which one would you rather be? And what cherished alabaster jars might the Lord be calling you to give up for the sake of his worthiness. Would you please pray with me is what I would say if I were done. Sorry, I had to do it this way. I'm not done. But I realized as I was going through this that if I stopped here 
and said, which one do you want to be, the woman or Judas? And you go, ah, of course, I don't want to be Judas. I want to be like the woman. I, I want to have that sort of devotion for Jesus, that kind of desire for Jesus. So if I stopped there and just ended us on a nice rhetorical note and said, let's pray, you know what the first words I'd have to pray in the prayer are? It'd be something like, Lord, help. I, I want to increase my devotion. I want to love you like this, but I know deep down in my guts that a part of me is just too selfish for this. Now, I might not go as far as Judas has gone, but I definitely don't look like the woman. And I need your righteousness, Jesus. I need your help, Jesus, to do this. That's true. The gospel is that Jesus accomplishes for us things that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. The gospel, or the good news, will always point us to God, not to ourselves. And so as we look to God, there's one final piece that's left in here as we look at the comparison of these two tables. And it has to do with something I mentioned before with the idea of things being premeditated. Now, as soon as I say that word premeditated, what do you think? Murder? Am I crazy to think that? The word premeditated in my mind is attached to, you know, premeditated murder. Maybe I just watch too many court shows or CSI things, but that's what I think. But if you think about the word premeditated by itself, meditated or meditation just means to, to really think seriously on. And then pre means before. So to think on before, or in other words, to plan ahead. There were several things premeditated here. Judas plotted with the religious leaders to betray Jesus beforehand. His acts were premeditated. And the woman did not come into that meal empty-handed. In her pocket or in her hand was the jar. She knew, she premeditated and planned beforehand that she would pour this perfume over the head of Jesus. And even Jesus here, when he's planning for the Passover, you see, remember he talks about, you're going to go into the city and you'll see a man carrying a jar, which was odd in those days. That was women's work, by the way. Men carried their jars in wineskins. Um, so he says, go, go talk to this guy, and he's going to give you my room. It sounds Jesus has planned this beforehand. He set up arrangements. Now he says, I just want you to go, go do this. But Jesus' plan, the plan of God, goes even deeper than just setting up the, the upper room, put the cushions in the right places, and make sure the food's there. You can see it most clearly in verse 21 at the very end. Here's the first part of this verse. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, all of this is playing out according to the plan of God. There's a detail in this whole thing that I almost missed. Someone else pointed it out to me. Verse, in the first couple of verses of this chapter, we see the chief priests and the scribes, they've been 
trying to get Jesus for a long time now. All the way back to chapter 3, they've been trying to sort of get him out of the way. But now here they're plotting again, yet again. And you see at the end of this section, verse 2, they say, okay, we want to arrest him, but they, they, they said, not during the feast. And that's a strategic move. They're talking about the, the, the week of the Passover feast because during that week, people pour into Jerusalem. The city probably increased uh, at least five times bigger than it normally was during the Passover feast. And there were a lot of folks in there, and a lot of these people were in support of Jesus. So they're thinking, we want Jesus out of the way, but if we do it now during the feast, there might be an uprising there might be a riot that comes out of this if we pull him out during the feast. So uh, we don't want it to happen during the feast, and yet they did arrest him during the feast. Why? It's because ultimately all of this is unfolding according to God's timing. All of it. The Lord's plan is being accomplished here, and things, no matter how out of control they seem, are not out of control. God is working in his time. I don't know about you, but that does something to me. I really let that settle in. Okay, Lord, you are working according to your time. For me, this makes me just a little bit more patient, at least here and there. God's working according to his time, so, so I'll be a little more patient with you. I'll be a little more patient with myself. If God is working to, according to his time, this makes me just a little bit more at at peace. God is working according to his time. This gives me just a little bit more grace. And if God is working according to his time, this helps me just a little bit more to trust him, to be fully devoted to him. Just a little bit more, it releases my grip on that little alabaster jar. We know that as God is working according to his plan in his timing, Jesus also gave up something. And what he gave up is so much more precious than what I could ever give up. We heard it earlier in our time of assurance out of Romans 5. Here's the, here's the verse again, Romans 5, verse 6. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus gave up himself for sinners in the most radical act of devotion of all. Isn't he worth our devotion then in return? Now, would you please pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, 
We know that our hearts are weak and waver, but you are worthy of all praise. Help us not to harden our hearts, but give us hearts that honor you, that trust you, that depend upon you, that are really, truly devoted to you. We want this because you're worth it. Thank you for being our God. And we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.